This podcast is brought to you by the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. The advent of AI, artificial intelligence, is leading to deeper conversations about the influence this technology will have in the years ahead. And as in several areas of our culture, there are ethical questions being asked about AI's impact on our lives in the future. Timney Gabriel is a research scientist with Google's uh, artificial intelligence team. She is speaking today here at the University of Pennsylvania, more specifically here at the Wharton School, to take a look at how the history of collecting sociocultural data will influence AI, but she is also joined us here in the studio for a little while. Nice to meet you. Welcome uh, welcome to Philadelphia. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Uh, with so many concerns about kind of co- the collection of data already right now, what are you most concerned about the process that we will see probably play out as AI continues to be a bigger piece of what we deal with on a daily basis? I think the thing I, I have been most concerned about is the quote-unquote, move fast and break things um, attitude. And with my talk and with my research, that's some of the thing, uh, that's one of the things I'm trying to change, right? So when you have software and when you have like um, all of these tools that are available for people that you can just download really quickly and um, collect data really quickly and kind of put it out there quickly, um, you, you tend to do, you tend to not think about certain things, right, that you should think about. And so we need to have incentive structures out there to slow down a little bit and um, educate people on what kind of things they should think about when they're collecting data. So what do you think then we need to put in place to actually get to that point? I think it's a combination of things. So it was interesting that you were talking about Intel because I used to work in the hardware industry. And um, one of my papers that I wrote, it's called Data Sheets for Datasets. And that's um, talking about instituting process that exists in hardware. And hardware, it's very difficult to move fast and break things. You have to move very slowly and don't break anything, right? Because when you break something, it costs you a lot of money. And so instituting that kind of process um, internally in inside of companies and also regulation, but I mean, that's a, a, a different conversation. But I think there need to be international standardization bodies. There needs to be a, a bigger process in companies. Um, there needs to be an understanding of um, institutionalization of process and kind of rewarding people who follow those kinds of processes. So when you're talking about ethics and AI and that, that point of intersection, are the parties all involved, the companies, the, the people with the with the firms, are, are they truly aware of some of these issues that are out there and they are are they prepared to address them? <laughs> I I don't know if people are truly aware. Like, for example, I just learned about a company called Clearview AI, like yesterday, um, from a New York Times article. And this was the kind of, I'm not sure if you've heard about it. It was this like little company that's scraping um, lots and lots of billions of photos from Facebook. And they can, um, law enforcement uh, is using it to identify suspects, right? Yeah. And it's not just a database of criminals that they're using now. It's a database of just anybody. And so the, the, the fear is that they can just use that privacy as we know it would be over that you could just walk down the street one day and they can take a picture of you and and that's what's going to happen right I didn't know this company existed I mean I knew that this possibility existed but I didn't know this company exists so so I one of the things that's happening is that your some of your prior guests said that technology innovation is outpacing um, regulation and policy, right? And so all of these little things are popping up that we didn't know about. And so I don't think everyone is aware. Um, I think that, for example, 
one of my papers with Joy Bolomini showed that there were high disparities in error rates um, uh, across different groups of people for right. face recogn- uh, for automated facial analysis tools. Right, that paper just came out in a- um, 2018, right. and we showed for the first time that how high the disparities in error rates were um, between darker skinned women and especially lighter skinned men, and that spurred a lot of activity. Like that spurred a lot of changes in industry and policy, and so that's the fastest that I've seen from under like learning about something to policy. But most there are many such problems that people are not aware of. So I think. then do you think, is it fair then to call it this, what we're going to move into in the, in the next few years with AI more and more of an impact uh, on our lives? Is this kind of a revolution that, that we're going to be going through with obviously what we're going to be seeing firsthand, but as you just alluded to, a lot of the changes that are going to need to occur in company structure and policy and regulation? I hope it will be a revolution. I don't know if it will be a revolution, but I do know like this this last couple last year and this year there's been a lot more activity on this area, a lot more conversations than when I first started working on this kind of topic where it was very difficult for me to even explain to people why it's important to think about these things. And I also realized um I've I've been noticing that this year there's much more conversation about the intersection of labor rights, um people working um in low wages annotating images or something like this for AI. Mm-hmm. Um, and the intersection of that with ethics as well. And so so it's probably fair to call it a revolution. I'm not sure. I hope it will be, but yeah. So then how do you think then, using your company as an example with at Google, how has that intersection starting to develop? Or, you know, are you seeing some of the changes occur in, in the daily operations of Google? Yeah, I have I have seen some changes. So, for example, um, some of uh, the things I'm uh, I, I wrote about in some of my papers were trying to institute. You know, it's it's hard to steer a big ship, right? We're a small research team trying to like <laughs> <laughs> change things. But one example I want to give you is that um, it's basically unheard of to have an interdisciplinary research team at Google, right? Like it's all the interviews are about coding and and some other things. And so we just had the first social scientist to be a research scientist at Google, right? Writing a paper about critical race theory and how that should, you know, be uh, there should be a fair fairness uh, literature. So ethics and fairness literature should take a look at critical race theory and things like that. And that's kind of unheard of, right? So I think it's important to have that type of thinking, those kinds of other disciplines injected into the tech industry right now. Yeah. Um, so so this is one, just one example I'm giving you. And and of course, there was, um, I think uh, Sundar just came out saying that he supports a ban on, um, on yeah. face recognition. So yeah. these are changes that have happened relatively quickly, I would say, in the last couple of years. But there is, of course, a long way to go. But I, I think the other interesting piece to this is, and you alluded to it a moment ago, is there are so many different areas where this type of data and this type of process are, are being tested out or being looked at right now. There was one that was highlighted in an article that, that you were part of in the New York Times about looking at the type of, of people that are going to vote Republican voters and the types of cars that they drive. And you would think, you, you know, why would you want to know that? But there are all there are various reasons for wanting to even know that type of information. You know, what's interesting is um, that was part of my Ph.D. project. And some of my subsequent work is actually um, motivated by that, because when I was working on that project. So I'm still working on some some kinds of research like that, I think, which would be helpful, for example, in the developing world where we, where you don't have a lot of money to perform census and things like that. But you have publicly available satellite imagery and you can learn 
some things that would help for policy and that would help you understand certain things. But then it could also be used in ways that are just not great at all. So some of the places, people who were very interested in that line of work were banks and insurance companies. And then there was a subsequent paper that came out that talked about how, I don't know if you looked at, um, uh, heard about this, Um, they they claimed to to be able to predict your oh, is it your rate of car accidents? I forget now. Based <laughs> on your your house, like how your house looks on Street View, right? And and the article wow. started. It started. It, you know, first a group of you know Stanford researchers um, showed this kind of thing with cars, and now yeah. follow up work. And I'm like, oh, but this is not what I want. Well, you just know? just what you said there a second ago about the potential impact on something like the census. Yeah. I mean, the census has been obviously this traditional element that we have here in the United States every ten years, or obviously you know, in the process of going through it right now. But when you think about other countries, to be able to truly understand how many people live in a country, what the rate of migration might be in a, in a particular part of the world, that's all very important information to be able to have a better understanding on. Yeah, absolutely. And actually, I when I was working on, on this project, to be honest with you, I didn't know how contentious the census was and how political it was. And I talked to Dana Boyd from Data and Society, who was also at Microsoft Research, and she is an expert on the census. And so, for example, we were talking about how different groups of people can be undercounted because they're too scared to to like um, answer survey questions on the census, right? Mm-hmm. So one thing I was thinking about is how can you complement this door-to-door kind of thing with use, using publicly available data, right? right? Like to see if there is severe undercounting in some areas than others. And th- this is the kind of use that I would be excited about, um, even, even in the United States. But like with everything, um, there are so many other ways in which, you know, this kind of work can be used. And I, I, I started thinking more and more about it after I was done working on the project. One of the other areas I know that you, you're very passionate about is diversity. And I wanted to touch on that for a moment. And, and if you can, give us what you think is kind of the state of diversity in the tech sector, because obviously that's that's been a story that has been talked about a lot oh. in, in the last few years. And the hope is that, that it maybe is incrementally improving a little bit. So the overall state is not very good. I'm not. I'm just gonna say it's, yeah. it's just not good. Um, and and one of the so Rachel Thomas is someone I really admire, and she writes um, just so clearly about some of these topics. And one thing she wrote was um, how diversity branding hurts diversity, which means um, a lot of corporations and institutes talk so much about diversity, and so you think that there's a lot going on, right? And that hurts actual diversity because there, it also creates a backlash. Um, one of my colleagues was actually doxxed on, on on Twitter for working on the kinds of things we do and because it, it creates the kind of backlash that it does, right? So um, I, I don't like all so much of the talk about diversity. Um, in, and so, and I, I don't know if it's getting better, but in some ways, uh, one positive uh, thing I can talk about is, you know, we, we started a group called uh, Black and AI with uh, my co-founder, Reddy Dababa, and, and we poured our heart and soul into it, right? And we did a lot of other work. And so this um, conference called NeurIPS, which is um, one of the, I think, the largest academic uh, machine learning um, AI, basically, conference. And... Um, when I went there in 2016, there was about 5,500 people, I believe, and I counted like five black people internationally. Mm-hmm. Right, so it's so it's an international conference. So internationally, black people, however you count it, let's let's say the U.S. based kind of race, um, uh, it, it's it's about 20 percent, right? Like you know, so five out of 5,500 yeah. is mm-hmm. so after 
all of this work, right, like all the work we did, we increased the presence to, let's say, like three, four hundred out of like 15,000. So it's like five, four, five hundred out of 15,000. So now when I went back to that conference, I felt a lot more. I mean, it's still, by the way, that's a really low number, right? (laughs) All of that work got us from five to 500. That's a really low number, but it makes a huge difference because you see when people go there, they don't feel so as isolated as before. It it makes a huge difference, even if it's a small number. And so when I went to this conference again, it was actually the most inclusive conference I had been to. Like there were different groups called Disabilities and AI, uh, advocating for people with disabilities, accessibility, making sure people with disabilities are are taken care of and, and you know their needs are taken care of, right? Because there's a lot of practices that are not uh, good for them. Um, queer and AI, Latinx and AI, and there was all sorts of stuff that was going on. Um, and then the conference itself changed some of its you know structure mm-hmm. to accommodate these things. And so that's a great change because now, you know, I want to go back to that conference again. Many times your experiences at these conferences will make or break whether you want to be in a particular field because if right. you feel super isolated, you don't you know, you don't feel welcome, you'll just be like I don't think this is for me. I'm going to do something else. Great meeting you. Thank you for coming in today. Thank go, you. Have fun with the uh, with the uh, with the conference and the, and the speech day. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Tim Gabriel uh, with uh, Google's artificial intelligence team. To keep engaged with Wharton Business Daily and other Wharton School shows, visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.